Welcome to the Broadband Bunch, a podcast about broadband and how it impacts all of us. Join us to learn about the state of the industry and the latest innovations and trends. Connect with the thought leaders, pioneers, and policymakers helping to shape your future through broadband. The Broadband Bunch, as always, sponsored by ETI Software. The Broadband Bunch, back on the air from Mountain Connect 2019. Craig Corbin, Pete Pizzatillo, and our special guest, Brian Snyder. Welcome. Welcome, Brian. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Maybe you uh, can do us a favor and explain a little bit about how you ended up here. I know you just did a panel to kind of Broadband 101 for municipalities. Sure. So we just finished a panel with uh, Next Century Cities, Cat Blake is the host, um, and talking about their broadband toolkit which, first of all, go online, it's great. Um, But it really gives communities the ability to go somewhere to get started. And when we, you know, our mindset when we created even the idea of lit communities was more how can we get municipalities to move forward? And that was the most important aspect of what we were looking for. And we feel the toolkit and then the panel that we just did is an indication of different ways we can move forward with this and it's not one size fits all it's right you know let's figure out a way to make make the box fit a little bit differently for each community so or blow up the box or blow up the box as i mentioned (laughs) in the panel yeah so So, how how long has lit communities been in existence so we actually just started lit communities um the idea of lit communities has been around for the past four years so we I, i started the practice area the network design practice area at foresight group and we began then focusing more on open access lit networks and lit communities was the way for the private industry to get more into the space to try to get these networks to move faster because that was a big issue that we saw we've worked through with communities like broomfield colorado and breckenridge colorado and uh, new orleans louisiana and we get to the point where we'd have this great business plan but then the funding you know, you're spending months and months of trying to raise funding. So Lit Communities is for the community. We help bring uh, different financing to the table, but we brand the network always to be the community's network. So Lit Communities in the, is in the background keeping the momentum going. So we're a new community, or a new company, sorry. Uh, we're a new company because we've recently had multiple projects now funded going forward in the models we've been recommending. That's an interesting model. As you mentioned in the panel discussion, one of the biggest fears, I think it was mentioned out there, was the, the capital expenditure, right? And so you're helping attack that very specific problem that seems like an inertia for a lot of these communities. Yeah, and, and every, every community looks at this and they look at the price tag and they get these big wide eyes like, holy crap, how are we going to do this? Right. But then once you start peeling back and peeling back more and more, I'm not spending $70 million to go build out in the next two weeks. You, it's right. going to be a segmented process that people need to understand that this is a long play that you're in. So think of the financing from that standpoint too. And think of the financing from it takes different capital stacks to be able to get it done from you can use private equity, you can use local banks who are now more um, based on new CRA changes. They, they are incentivized to move forward with community projects. Well, what better to invest in than community broadband? So in a lot of our markets, we're le- working with local banks and things like that. But it's, it's that, yeah, that price tag fear is like, holy cow, it's sticker shock. 
But then once you start looking at it and breaking it down, they sit back and go, oh, we could do this and we can manage it the right way and, and realize that I don't have to have $70 million of capital just sitting there spending money right. when I can spend $1 million, prove ourselves out, then the capital is going to be able to come in in different ways. So it's about building that plan and then executing it from both a uh, operational standpoint and then aligning it with the finances too. And one thing that you can see in many areas with regard to taking a step-by-step -step approach, building out zone after zone after zone, and uh, many communities have benefited tremendously from that. Bottom line is, regardless of the time and the effort and money that it takes, the community and all the constituents are the ones who benefit. Correct, correct. And that, that's why the, the, the it's that's why we're called lit communities in that sense, because it takes a community to do this the right way. But if you're not focused from that community mindset and you're jumping in this to just make a bunch of money out the gate, you're in it for the wrong reasons, first of all. And then second of all, it's the it's the it's bigger than the internet now. It's bigger broadband is you have to be online for students to finish homework. And I always say that there could be a student in um, Lampasas, Texas, another community we lived in that could cure cancer if you had the right connectivity. Right. And you have to think about it that big of a standpoint. It's it's now an economic game changer. It's a workforce development game changer. And it, it's bigger than the money's worth it. Go do it. But it doesn't have to be this huge, again, huge shock to your you know senses. But like you said with the zones, you're building out as you go. And as long as the community understands that, you'll still be successful. Right. Well, do you see a pattern in the types of communities that are starting to think about this problem the way you're talking about? Is there any kind of, is it rural, urban? Is it metropolitan near it, zones? It, is there any kind of correlation there? If you asked me that same question four years ago, I would have gave you a totally different answer. Everybody's looking at it now. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I w after the panel that we just got done, uh, uh, I don't know if he was a resident or a, a uh, part of the council or actually working with the city, but Marble, Colorado has about 500 homes. They're like, can your model fit this? Well, of course it can. And you, they were like, well, we were told by another consultant that open access wouldn't work in Marble, Colorado. Well, open access is not just about the providers from ISPs and internet voice and data. You can have one provider, but still be open access for telehealth and smart applications. Right. And so every community is looking at this now. And if they're not, they're falling behind already. You know, you talk about the different ways that communities benefit and uh, being competitive from an economic development standpoint is something that we are seeing now across the board. The ones, the, the communities that, that see the future and know that if they don't start today, they are so far behind, many will never catch up. Yeah, and I, I say that to a lot of the communities that we go meet with. If you're not putting a shovel in the ground today, you're already behind. Wow. Technology is changing too fast, and it's just, it's the 5G, you know, just those buzzwords and the acronyms everybody loves to use in this industry. But it, it, it's true to the fact that you have, you have applications that are evolving so fast in other countries that are better connected than us right now. And we, we should be able to have the connectivity to implement the technology changes from autonomous vehicles to gunshot recognition software to, um, you know, e even the 5G standpoint that they're talking about. But we're so far behind in infrastructure in those regards. It, if you're not, again, same comment, if you're not putting a shovel in the ground and building out fiber broadband right now or in fiber networks, you're behind. Right. You made a comment earlier on the panel, too, that 5G is so misunderstood at this point in time. 
It's probably a big conversation, but it, what would you quickly say about that? I feel like it's almost being used to kind of take advantage a little bit of the situation. I say that by meaning the the larger companies that are working to put 5G's in, 5G in these major tier one cities, it's causing the communities that aren't as well connected as, say, like a Nashville or... Um, or Houston or Dallas, those tier one NFL cities that already have fiber all throughout the cities, they're the communities that are outside of them think, well, 5G is just going to answer all our problems. Well, 5G only goes about 700 feet. They, in Chicago, when they were doing testing, the signal wouldn't even go through your hand depending on where you stood and how you held it. So we're a long ways away from 5G being successful. And I always like to say, if it can only go 700 feet, how many homes am I going to build out to in rural America? Right. I got to go build all the way to your driveway to get a 5G signal to your house. Why don't I just go ahead and just build the rest down the driveway? Right. Economically, it'll still actually make more sense. Where I see 5G and like uh, smart sensors coming into play are all the smart city applications. It's for the. It's going to be for autonomous vehicles. It's going to be on the interstates and things like that to where it, it needs to be thought of differently. And I say just replace everything that you see with 5G with fiber, and then we're on the right path right now. I see. As we begin to wrap things up, what drives you and the team at Lit Communities? Uh, We just want to connect people. It's that simple. If you can connect people in this day and age, you can change the world if you think about it that way. So, like, like I said, some person that's sitting in another room that's working their tail off in Africa right now should have the same ability as somebody and be able to connect to somebody working in New York, potentially at a hospital, to figure things out. And our, that's all our mission is, is to connect people. If we connect people, we've accomplished our goal. It's a great mission. Where can people find out more about Lit? So litcommunities.net. And we're starting uh, our last mile networks in Medina County, Ohio, and we're starting to look at a few other communities that are going to be built out starting this year and working into next year. So we're really excited. And so, yeah, that's litcommunities.net. Great. We appreciate your time. We appreciate what you're doing. Thanks, guys. No, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Big thanks to Brian Snyder. Thanks. Thanks. Broadband Bunch continues again from Mountain Connect 2019, the lovely Keystone Resorts here in Colorado, a gorgeous uh, facility alongside Pete Pizzatillo, Craig Corbin, and our special guest, Sean Stokes, principal with the law firm of Baller, Stokes, and Lyde. And welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks, Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Sure. How's the event going so far? It's, it's good. It's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a lot of breath. Uh, I've, it's been a number of, of slaps where I needed to go to more than one at the same right. time and clone myself and poke my head in and out. But I, I think it's good. I, and I'm seeing good traffic. So, yeah, I feel like it's good. Good, mm-hmm. uh, good follow-up questions at a lot of the sessions, which you always like to see. Have you been to uh, Mountain Connect before? I've been to one a uh, long time ago, like one of the earliest ones. Um, and then I've also been out here with the uh, Colorado um, uh, Utility Alliance, which also does a lot of things with Mountain Connect. Right. Any trends popping up that you see that's new, interesting? Well, the tracks that I tend to follow, it, you know, it's, it's the curse of you tend to go to the things you know about because you want to see what, you know, what's being said on that. And so I, I, 
in the, the areas that I've been following have been sort of the, the community broadband tracks. I've been uh, following very closely anything having to do with the, the electric cooperatives getting into this space. Um, I've also been looking at a lot of the, the, there's been two or three tracks that have been talking about uh, wireless and 5G. The ones I've been trying to get into because I don't know much about and I need to find uh, time to find out about is a lot more of the things about the driverless vehicles and, and, and a lot of those other capabilities. Right. So you're involved in many facets of this community, but you're here, you're speaking tomorrow on a specific topic. Can you tell us about that? Sure. I'm speaking tomorrow for, for uh, CLIC, the Coalition for Local Internet Choice, uh, which is a uh, nonprofit group made up of both public sector and private sector entities that basically advocate for uh, community choice um, in its many facets and just making sure that uh, state and local governments and consumer-owned entities, whether it's co-ops or others, just have a full range of options available to them to meet their broadband needs. Uh, it doesn't mean that we advocate for any particular one of those. Uh, we're agnostic on that. We're also relatively agnostic on the technology, whether it's fiber or wireless or some combination. But we just want to have uh, a, a options available to as many communities as possible, rather than having something from a, a legislative or regulatory preclusion for those types of options. You have been on the front lines of that battle, and I use that term uh, literally because it has been a battle uh, nationwide. Right. Why is it that uh, it is such a challenge for municipalities and the like to gain the right to provide broadband? Right, yeah, we, we've definitely been doing it for quite some time. We were involved in going back to uh, litigation that went all the, way, all the way up to the Supreme Court uh, back in the early 2000s, dealing with a state law that restricted municipal utilities in Missouri. Uh, I think that the issue is that um, it used to be concern about public sector entities getting involved in areas that, they, that there was a feeling that they didn't know much about. But a lot of that has, has gone away, particularly when there's been more and more focus on uh, infrastructure and things that local governments certainly do. They do long-term infrastructure all the time. Um, and, and, and fiber and, and, and public-private partnerships, which of course they enter into those types of arrangements all the time. So it's really moved away from public versus private. As I said, CLIC is very much um, comprised of public and private entities uh, moving this. And I, I tend to see most, not all of, but most of the opposition coming from incumbents. And, and you know, I don't blame them. They, they have particular... Um, market goals and certainly anytime you can keep someone out of your market uh, you continue to do well without having to invest any additional money and I don't mean that actually in, in a negative way they are focused on what makes uh, most sense for their particular business model and you know if, as an investor in them I, that's what they're supposed to do our concern is you don't want to preclude others from being able to get access to those capabilities that their communities need just because it doesn't fit within someone else's particular business model. It, it's an interesting, there was an earlier conversation around open access, right, mm -hmm. and how the, the commentary was that the business model, though, has been set in the mind of the consumer as that is what the cost structure really is, right, and that to buy, having access for additional bandwidth to get to a gig was really expensive, but the incremental cost really isn't so, and, and so separating their interests, the incumbent's interests in their business model from the realities of what the cost structures are for getting access to all these people, I think that kind of transparency needs to be discussed and, and made available to people from a, 
um, you know, more public view rather than, you know, right now it's very, you know, the information is being controlled by, I think, the incumbents up until this point in time. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think that open access, uh, in a lot of ways, you would think, as a, a layperson would think, well, why wouldn't an incumbent like this, if this can help avoid uh, sunk capital costs and infrastructure costs, and they can focus on other other aspects that, th that they're, they can differentiate themselves on. But I think the view is, and that may make sense if you were starting from scratch, but from their point of view is we already own these networks and we have certain capabilities because of those and we have certain dominance because of those and they're, they're hesitant in most cases to to get on to, to be an anchor tenant. You know, they'll, they'll fill out a part of a network where they don't already have things and they'll do some redundancy here and there, but by and large, they do not ride on an open network. And so one of the things, I, as I said, I'm agnostic on, on, the, on the, the particular business model. I've seen open access networks that work fine. My concern is that when they first rolled out, some of them were mandated by state laws that said you, you can't get in this space unless it's through an open access uh, network and you can have no control in vetting who your retail customers are. And that's problematic because if you go out there and you've bonded money, your taxpayers or consumers, whoever, have paid for something assuming some capabilities, but then the retail provider doesn't do the follow through and you have no ability to control that. Well, and that's the worst of all possible worlds. And if the incumbents aren't gonna jump onto that, that means there's just gonna be, it's, you're gonna have parallel networks and yet it's not being cost supported. So I viewed open access networks where it's mandated as the only way, as a sort of a cynical way of saying, yeah, go ahead, smart guy, get in this <laughs> network and do this. And from my point of view, from a business, almost any business you go into, and you've got a great business plan, but then whatever realities happen to impact you for good planning or bad planning for whatever, you want the flexibility to adopt and change. That's the concern I've got. If you go into open access, if you have the ability to modify it to just even tweak it here or there to make it work some other way to adjust to their circumstances, that's one thing. If on the other hand, you shoehorned in, you can't make those changes. You know, then then you're suffering from the very flaw that local governments are accused of, of not operating like a business, right. you know? Right. So you spoke about Click. Where can we find more information about Click? Uh, so they, they do have a, um, a web presence, and I, uh, unfortunately, I, I, will, I will get you guys the, uh, uh, the, the web address as, off, offline because I'm just not remembering what, the, okay. what it is. Uh, but, yeah, so we, um, we've got a significant uh, group of... Uh, uh, more than 550 um, uh, entities of all all size, public, private. We've got some hit, heavy hitters that we pull out every once in a while uh, when we try and work against some of these uh, bills that get introduced. Because for years we found that when the local government entities sh would show up, their lobbying clout was not exactly the same. But all but when you can put uh, uh, Google and Netflix and Indeed and uh, even uh, um, uh, Ting and Dell and a bunch of these others showing up there and saying, no, we actually support this too because it's good for us in terms of getting broadband capabilities. That at least puts a little bit of a pause, like, well, wait a minute, this isn't just, right. this isn't rampant socialism. These are right. pretty <laughs> big capitalistic type of companies. Right. Companies, you know, that, that have a vested interest themselves in getting good broadband capabilities. So it doesn't, doesn't deliver the day necessarily, but it evens that playing field a little bit.
you are wearing multiple hats yes. here during yeah. the uh, event. Uh, we talked about the fact that uh, your presentation was in representation of Click, right. but uh, also very intrigued about uh, some of the legal work that uh, is going on on behalf of a coalition of municipal electric utilities. Talk about what's going on uh, there with regard to the FCC. Sure, so the, um, the FCC has adopted some uh, orders uh, intended to remove perceived barriers to uh, 5G rollout, and, and I think that's all well and good. And I think we do need to do what we can to accelerate 5G and other broadband capabilities. I, I, I'd be hypocritical given the other parts I said if I didn't think that was true. Uh, however, I do think that the FCC has taken sort of a, a, a one-size-fits-all and is really saying that we're going we're gonna to do this and, uh, and sort of what they view as sort of the low-hanging fruit of removing uh, what it perceives as barriers being uh, local government permitting and regulating and, and right-of-way control and management, which historically has been the quintessential things that local governments do, zoning. I mean, you know, it really is just that. Um, where I come into it is I represent also uh, municipal electric utilities, and uh, they own uh, utility poles just like uh, private inve investor-owned and cooperative-owned electric utilities and for decades actually going back to 19 since 1978 municipally owned electric utilities public power utilities are exempt from the FCC's federal pull attachment regulations and the FCC has acknowledged that again and again now sometimes they have said we don't like this but they've acknowledged that they have no authority to change that either the states have to do something or congress has to change the law now all of a sudden out of whole cloth the FCC has used a different portion of an existing law to say, we actually think that we do have the ability to reach um, uh, access to uh, public power utility poles. So uh, we're involved in uh, litigation in the Ninth Circuit um, Court of Appeals right now, and that is going on. It's a massive piece of litigation. It's involving just about every wireless uh, main of the, of the main wireless carriers, uh, dozens and dozens of local governments as local governments, as cities, and as I said, I'm, I'm in there uh, working on behalf of the uh, public power community because we just think that the FCC has, has really just stepped too far beyond this. The other thing we think is that the FCC really just doesn't recognize um, yeah, there are reasons why people do things through pole attachment agreements and I recognize that those can take a while but when you're talking about putting wireless facilities on electric utility poles that's not going that's not a traditional a horizontal wire going in the communication space that is actually going above the electric space uh, which has significant safety and operational issues that at least have to be factored in when the FCC is adopting shot clocks and time frames by which you have to act um, so that's that's part of it was really just think that the FCC needs to have developed a, a, a more detailed thought thought out record on some of this We've been visiting with uh, Sean Stokes, principal with Baller Stokes and uh, Lyde, also representing Click here at uh, Mountain Connect. Um, we can talk so much about the uh, the litigation that goes on in fighting this battle, and it's nice to know that we have uh, fellows like you that uh, have been willing to invest the time and effort in that process because it is not something that is done easily, and uh, I'm always uh, I have great admiration for those who see the benefit to local communities because I think more often than not the uh, the impression is that when communities do eventually get that ability to have broadband service themselves the end user the customers are more well served 
than by most incumbents. Would you agree that that's a yeah, fair I, assessment? I, I do. I think I think that's absolutely true. I think that the the uh, the level of high satisfaction um, with uh, public sector community broadband initiatives, partly because it's targeted what the specific needs are of that community. They tend to be more responsive because they're, not, and again, not from a cynical way that there's something bad against the, 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 a private sector entity. It's more that those folks are local there, and so they have they have specific interest and a focus to it, and their time frames meet that. They were also more, more than willing to go out and, and go and focus on intangibles that it doesn't make sense for a private company's bottom line to go out and build to a certain else another area um, and the other part the other final part of it is a lot of the contrary to what a lot of people would think a lot of the community networks that have been built and that have been highly successful whether it's the chattanoogas the lafayettes are actually in relatively conservative communities and they've done this actually at the behest of their private businesses who are saying we need this stuff to thrive and, and, and stay alive. This is not, uh, this is not uh, a situation where uh, the, you know, the um, local uh, civic groups and, and private sectors aren't fully on board with getting these capabilities. And that's the other reason why I think it tends to be tremendously supportive because they view it as a way to enhance their own economics um, in that area. And, and bottom line is that a lot of communities, particularly in rural areas, say that they need this to keep people to, to stay there. To keep the right. workforce in the place. Workforce, to, to a reason why to keep uh, uh, kids staying there, coming back from college, you know, all those types of things. You hear it again and again. And to that point, I think that unless the municipalities uh, are willing to have that foresight today and begin planning, they're way behind the, uh, the eight ball as far as the competitive nature of, of uh, the economy. Sure, certainly. Certainly. Also, the other part of it is to the extent that they get hung up too much on the, uh, the flash bang of, of, of high-speed bandwidth for Internet access alone, as opposed to recognizing it's a platform for just about everything in a modern information economy, whether it's healthcare, banking, uh, safety, electricity, all these things assume the availability of a robust broadband capability. We were just talking about telehealth earlier and with the you know the baby boomers moving into their later years, right, and, and they're affluent and moving out into the countryside and they're not used to the same broadband um, that they had earlier, but they have the money and now the need, right, telehealth I could see really becoming a booming industry because they, you know, they're moving out there to enjoy their life, but they still need to be connected to their doctors, to the right. physician, to the pharmacists. You know, so I, that, it's something that I actually didn't have a good view of until, you know, I think until it hits you personally. But it's also coming in focus, right? What that view of telehealth is, it's kind of disruptive to the typical health model. Sure. But I think even more important to keeping people local, it's attracting the baby boomer community, which is going to be around for the next 20 years. They're going to need help. They have a lot of money and a lot of... Uh, I don't know, a willingness to go and figure it out, right? I mean, we've heard stories of folks just deciding to go put fiber in themselves. And these guys are in their 70s in, in oh, yeah. leading the charge. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's you know, we're, we're in Colorado, so, you know, a lot, a lot of people say that cable television, when it was referred to as CATV, Community yeah. Antenna TV, right. that was started in these areas, you know, because, they, because the mountains and other things, they couldn't get a signal and they, they put up an antenna and a repeater and they and they do it themselves. And, and really, a lot of this isn't that much different. And right. what a great example, because those were the guys, the pioneers who literally strung cable 
themselves right. to connect their communities. Right. Right. Phenomenal uh, analogy yeah. there. Yeah. Phenomenal. Nice. It's been great. Sure. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you very much. Sure How can thing. we find out more about your firm? Uh, uh, we are at Baller.com, B-A-L-L-E-R.com. As I said, we're in, uh, we're in D.C. Uh, and uh, afterwards, I will give you uh, uh, a, uh, a link also. We have a daily listserv that we put out. It's free, uh, and anybody that wants it. And it's basically just a compendium of links to articles uh, by topic, broad topics, you know, broadband, wireless, et cetera, that goes out daily. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's just one of those things that we just, uh, it, it's amazing. I was just talking to a gentleman uh, booth next door about this, the number of people that just get this thing and say, I didn't think about that six months ago, but now all of a sudden my boss said, oh, you need to know about this. <laughs> right. And it's nothing, it's nothing we're writing. We're just, it's just links that we're just putting yeah. out there, you know. That's great. Yeah. A big thanks to Sean Stokes, uh, principal of Baller Stokes and Lied, and also representing Click here at Mountain Connect. Broadband Bunch continues in just a moment. Broadband Bunch continues from Mountain Connect alongside Pete Pizzatillo, Craig Corbin, and our special guest, Craig Settles of CJ Speaks. Craig, welcome. Hi, how are you? And thank you for having me on your show. Great to have you, Craig and Craig. You, see, uh, you guys should start your own show. <laughs> I already told we them could. I love we the could. name. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. We'll just send notes to our mothers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So you've uh, you've been to Mountain Connect before? Yes, I was here last. Uh, it was about four years ago. Okay. And I have been a couple times before that. I had a book signing and some other stuff going on, and uh, and then I spoke. I have spoken here before, and I'll be speaking uh, tomorrow. And Craig, you were giving us uh, a bit of a background. In, yes. Uh, in your experience. So I started um, sort of as a fluke. I was writing. Uh, a book on wireless technology and I was interviewing I, uh, CIOs for different companies and then the announcement came out that Philadelphia was going to build its own Wi-Fi network and um, in the time that I had the interview with the city CIO I decided there was enough of a story there that merited its own book and so I built, uh, wrote um, uh, Fighting the Good Fight for Municipal Broadband. And in that exercise, I started the formulating um, strategies and guidelines and how to uh, approach the topic of you know, building a citywide network that had three main benefits. Now I have in sense talk about telehealth and healthcare in general, but in the beginning it was the quality of uh, the communication between various parts of the city and that was one main objective. And then the second one was uh, the business side okay. and why this would have a big benefit. Um, and then the sort of the residential side kind of came along as part of the discussion, but um, the idea of using broadband to facilitate uh, education, uh, that sort of came as I learned more about 
uh, cities and, and broadband, uh, though it was called Muni Wi-Fi back in those days. Um, and then uh, somewhere in the, you know, the turn of the decade, I started bringing in the topic of, tele- of, of um, healthcare. And, uh, and of the four, the, the healthcare was sort of the last because everyone was all focused on the economic development side. Right. And so we said, oh, we went with it. But uh, as I have now moved into uh, talking about telehealth, now it is becoming more uh, apparent that this could possibly usurp economic development as a primary driver for the network. Sure. Right? Uh, So that's been my evolution. I mean, the short version. (laughs) (laughs) And it's it's interesting evolution because I do think when when you start talking about broadband and access, um, there's some things that are readily understood or or tangible, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Wi-Fi, cable, video gaming, that kind of stuff. Um, And then people are slowly starting to see a more fuller version of that or vision of that. Right. Um, and telehealth, I think, is an interesting concept, but it's really disruptive, right? I mean, there's a lot of oh, yeah. people that oh, yeah. don't even understand how you can have, you know, remote support from a physician or pharmacist or, or whatever. So I think that's the struggle that you're, you're facing, you're having facing up to now is, is bringing that in focus and then explaining how broadband facilitates that vision. Right. Does that make sense? And and, um, I would say that the thing that brought it home the, you know, with the the most uh, urgency, uh, I had a stroke four and a half years ago, and um, I was very fortunate that I was able to get to the hospital within a few minutes, and they were able to treat me uh, where the, uh, the neurologist who was the manager, uh, you know, they own or in charge of the um, uh, the stroke center. She was at home and we're talking, you know, 1030 at night on a Saturday night. Right. And uh, but she was able to get online, see everything that the ER specialists were seeing and were able to start treatment in what's called uh, the door the, the the door to needle time okay the time from when you get to the hospital to when they start um treatments right and so it was 25 minutes and they were very happy about that and i i, was, I found loud later that you know that's their that's their um their goal with every person that comes in but as i went through recovery I was in the middle of writing a book, the um, uh, Building the Gigabit City, and the thing that I had struggled with was how do I make broadband real, and what, how do you make a gig real when people couldn't tell the difference between a gigabyte and a draft, right? <laughs> and so all of a sudden I had the way because then I could talk about the fact that if I wasn't lucky you know if i hadn't been lucky and i had cell service i was you know which i was able to use to call my friends um because i wasn't able to really my brain couldn't function to dial 911 um but you know there are people in a place 
uh, you know, as popular, populous as um, like Santa Fe. This woman fell off a ladder, uh, uh, got wrapped up in all the, the, the you know, the, the, the ladder itself. It was like aluminum or whatever. And, but she it took two hours to get her help because the cell phone didn't work. Yeah. And I understand here in, uh, in, in this area of, of Colorado, there are pockets of humanity where they have no cell service, right? And so as I looked at the aspects of my treatment from the you know, arriving in the emergency room, uh, as I started going through uh, rehab, as I was trying to communicate with friends, which was not an easy tour, and my friends and family are all over the, the country, you know, the ability to have that interaction, which is very important with stroke recovery, um, that wouldn't happen in a rural area. It wouldn't happen in a urban area that it's in a poor neighborhood where they don't have good broadband. Right. And so I was able then to one finish the book, but have chapters where I talked about um, not so much telehealth, but just using broadband to facilitate healthcare delivery. Yeah. And so as I went forward. Um, I had a more, you know, personal understanding of what we're talking about. So when two years ago or a year and a half, I started fully getting into the telehealth world, when telehealth was starting to get more uh, popular outside of medical journals, where people were talking about uh, the wellness dot, I forgot now their, their name, but there's about three or four that have, um, you know, doctors on demand kind of thing, right? right? And so as I started to get into the telehealth world, the breadth of treatments or possible treatments, right? you can't do surgery yet, but you can do, you know, surgery prep. You can deal with surgery recovery, um, types of, uh, you know, lifestyle changes, that makes sure that you don't have another heart attack or a stroke. You know, there are so many different ways in which it can be um, facilitated, right? And then you look at uh, not only the, um, uh, the, the, the personal part, but if I have um, my healthcare facilities and clinics and I can bring in a radiology center, a lab testing center. Yep. Even I could do a uh, medical research um, uh, where you have to move huge, huge amount of data. Well, all of those things can be brought together in a build-out that can facilitate community health across the board. And I and just to jump in there, and I mm -hmm. think even from the the medical industry perspective, right, that they've always tried to struggle with having um, one view of a patient, right? right? So if you have your primary care doctor and you have your cardiac specialist, your neurologist, you know, they each have their own view of you as you walk in the office. Mm -hmm. But in, in, this, in this model that you're starting to describe, it becomes more feasible for the multiple folks that are that are, are managing a single patient mm -hmm. to have a more holistic and complete view Right, which start giving them, enabling them to make better decisions, faster decisions with a lot more context. Exactly, and that 
is often referred to as the continuum of care. It is well, all of the different parts which right now are often paper-based and a doctor, you know, your primary care may have a different process of managing the patient, uh, checking up on the patient and so forth, and that may be different than my cardiologist. And if I were to go to a uh, neurologist again, it would be a different set of procedures and, and, and so forth that all together uh, makes up this continuum of care. But to bring all of these parts together, it is helpful, well, I would say imperative, especially when you talk about uh, low-income areas and rural areas. Um, this is where the, where the telehealth and the broadband comes in. And so to um, make that real, you have to figure out that what you are doing as a broadband provider is bringing those, understanding how those different pieces work and how they can be supported, right? Now, the, the broadband provider may not get in the business of, you know, providing telehealth services, but they've got to understand you know, the mechanics, you know, what happens when we want to increase the uh, level of uh, mental health uh, uh, work with populations that are di they don't have the Internet. Well, that, then what are you going to bring? What are you going to do? What are you going to bring them together? And I think that comes back to the study. I don't know if you want to ask a question about that, Craig. Absolutely. We yeah. are visiting, by the way, mm -hmm. with Craig Settles of CJ Speaks. And uh, to your point, Pete, uh, Craig, you've been involved uh, with the International Economic Development Council mm -hmm. uh, on uh, creating the future of community broadband, an economic development study. Um, some interesting data mm -hmm. that we see in this overview. Tell us a little bit about how this all came about to begin with. Okay. In 2005, when I started writing about uh, uh, municipal broadband, it was very interesting to listen to mayors, city council folks, and so forth, as they would describe the future of a connected city. And they all, we're gonna bring people back to the community. Uh, kids are gonna stay after graduating. Um, you're gonna find more, better jobs, right? There were a number of economic impacts that people expected to have once you would have broadband. And it went from broadband in the muni wire world to now uh, broadband and bringing gigabit and it's fiber and all of that. But there is a consistent level of people are well-intentioned, but they don't understand fully what the benefits might be on an economic standpoint. Right. So at 2006, I contacted um, uh, the IDEC and said, you know, your members are really the arbiters of local economic development. So why don't we do a survey of what they think about broadband? You know, all of these, these, these promises that politicians are making, what do the economic development folks see? And what I would find every year that I did this, and then up until 2014, there were a number of things that they basically said, that's not very 
helpful. <laughs> and well, so it, it sounded good. good, but it wasn't really practical right. reality. For the people okay. who were in the trenches, yeah. right? And so uh, and now it's four or five years later, I'm starting it again. And some of those things are still coming back again. One, like the biggest thing that when people say broadband and economic development, they say, you know, people will get a job. Well, when I gave uh, economic development people the option between uh, professional development, um, improving their uh, education status, uh, and also looking for a job, and I was like, one or two other factors, right? Jobs, finding a job was like the least beneficial um, for the last, I would say, six surveys. Um, when people talk about the gig, right? Well, do you need a gig to have certain out, uh, economic development outcomes? And now the, the questions, I, the, the outcomes I would talk about six, seven years ago are different now, right? But one thing is consistent is that when we're talking about getting businesses, especially big businesses coming into the area, yeah, you need a gig. But when you talk about smaller businesses, when you talk about people uh, who are homeowners and so forth, they don't need them. It doesn't mean, you know, they will, if there's a gig there, right. they'll take advantage right. of it. But in terms of a baseline, right? And then the other thing that just aggravated me was, oh, well, we have this, this definition of broadband is like three megabytes, you know, 25 down, but it's like two, three megs up, that's like useless. Right. I mean, that was like the least of any, you know, of any value of all the economic development people. They could not see any outcome that was really being, I mean, if you had nothing, yes, that would make right. sense. But overall, in terms of if you're trying to uh, revitalize cities, when you're trying to uh, attract uh, talent, um, all of those things, you need more. You don't necessarily need a gig, but you definitely have more. And so like this year, um, 100 megs, uh, symmetrical, 120 megs, um, uh, symmetrical, that's the most, I guess, support in terms of all of the, the, outlook, the outcomes that I've talked about in the survey. Right? Well, the value of this is that when you bring up your, your uh, network and when you have programs that are uh, facilitated by the network, if you have what we'll call the economic development perspective of, of, of broadband, you would create certain programs, certain uh, objectives, certain services that you would bring in, and I even talk about those, you know, digital literacy, you know, are the parents and teachers, um, do they have enough digital literacy? Right. Now, the, the provider will not necessarily do that, but you've got to facilitate that, and sure. you've got to bring stakeholders to the table and say, hey... This is what you got to, you know. So the survey's open. No, no, it's closed. It's closed now? Yep. Okay, mm -hmm. and when will the results be available? I am pushing for the third, uh, the second week of July. Okay, and we hopefully will have you back so you can tell us the findings yes. of that. It would be great. And how yeah. can uh, people find, how can our listeners find more information about ah, you? Okay. Uh, my uh, email address is craig at cjspeaks.com. And our, uh, my website is um, cjspeaks.com. And I would say if you're learning about uh, 
broadband and you're planning to move your city uh, into the broadband arena and if you're trying to understand the value of telehealth there are reports there are articles that I've written and, and interviews and so forth and so there's a whole lot of research and value uh, that's basically for free um, that you can benefit from Great. so people should stop should stop by the, the website yep and um you're also speaking this after, or tomorrow, 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 tomorrow afternoon. afternoon, right? So, absolutely, and we greatly appreciate the time. This is the Broadband Bunch, sponsored by ETI, and our special guest, Craig Settles, CJ Speaks. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Craig. All righty, bye.